money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Uh, We're bringing you another pre-recorded interview from our time in Davos this week. This is a sit-down I had with Neha Narula, who is the director of the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, where I actually used to work for a while with Neha. We haven't been together for quite a while, so it was a great opportunity to sit down and talk about, in particular, the work that uh, MIT is doing in conjunction with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston uh, on something called Project Hamilton, which is a really important development of public money, of central bank digital currency, uh, with a whole lot of interesting and important cryptographic privacy-protecting elements to it. And what all of that means in terms of the big picture of the future of money and so forth, and the perspectives that the establishment at, uh, at, at the Water Economic Forum in Davos have on these particular developments. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Hi, I'm Michael Casey, Chief Content Officer at Coindesk, and I'm here with Neha Narula, who's the director of the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, which, full disclosure, I used to work at as well. Neha was my boss. Uh, we haven't had a chance to sort of have a good sit down and a chat for a while, Neha. So, of course, and it takes coming to Davos to do that for some strange reason, but thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Michael, it is so wonderful to see you again, and I'm so excited to sit down and talk to you. We do not get to catch up often enough. Uh-huh. And yeah, it is a little weird we're doing it in Switzerland, but you know, you do what you can. Yeah, so it's great. We have a chance now to, uh, to do so in a casual, friendly environment, but of course, within the structure of an interview. Listeners, viewers, you're hearing this recorded at the WEF. So why don't we just take a step back little event that happened a month or so ago. In November? In the, Did something in the space, Something happened. And, and, and certainly for me here in Davos, it's like it's the elephant in the room because, you know, if you're talking to officials, for example, it's the framing with which, unfortunately, uh, many of them you know, look at the space right now. Like, yeah, absolutely. Sort of crypto, as you use the term, uh, token casinos. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. the way it's conceived. And so, but... Do you feel like it's just overshadowing everything in terms of those conversations? Uh, or do you feel as if policymakers, business leaders are actually able to see through that and sort of t- have, have serious conversations about real world applications of the technology? Yeah, it's so interesting. And Michael, it must be so interesting for you because Coindesk broke. Mm-hmm. You guys started it all. You were the snowball on top of the mountain that turned into an avalanche. So I just want to yeah, yeah, acknowledge it's, it's that. It's kind of weird being as much uh, the story as, uh, as covering the story. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Great picture in the New York Times. But I just wanted to acknowledge that because, you know, Thank when you. we talk about it, that's, that's what's happening here. It's been really interesting, actually, because I think it's a little bit of both. Like, definitely FTX and what happened is on the top of everyone's minds. And it's really interesting to me because I, I have gone to some of the panels here at the forum and ones that are not really supposed to be about crypto or blockchain or digital currency, they're half about that. The uh, bankers, PayPal brings it up, State Street brings it up, finance ministers bring it up. Everyone yeah. wants to talk about it and discuss it. And so it's really kind of interesting, even though we had what was ostensibly this very large collapse, even though Bitcoin's doing quite high right now, 
people are still talking yeah. about it. It's interesting that's making people think and talk about it, right? I, I think it's just not going away. It is yeah. real and it is here to yeah. stay. And yes, we are going to have collapses. They're going to be fraudulent actors. Things are going to happen. Some of it is because of what crypto is. You mentioned the term token casino. I use the term token casino. I think we did build a token casino, unfortunately, and we got a little bit off path. We diverged from where's the real value to users? Where's the real economic value, not just speculation? But that said, I mean, it's back to basics. We got into the space. You, you were here much earlier than I was, but you know, I think we got into the space because we saw something really special here that hasn't gone away. The technology hasn't changed. It's actually just gotten better. And so, yes, a lot of stuff has happened, but you know, we can exist with dichotomies. We, we can, hold, and walk at the same time. We can <laughs> hold two truths in our heads that yeah. says, you know, yeah, there's a lot of fraud. There's a lot of speculation, but also we see something really interesting in this technology and that's not going away. It's here. Yeah. We have to modernize our global financial systems. And there is something really cool happening here and it's still happening. So casino speculation thing I find really interesting because you say we want to get back to basics and we need to do this, we need to do that. And it's, it's very, very true, right? But this is a decentralized organization. You just can't tell <laughs> sort of token traders to stop doing what they do, right? So you have this sort of environment. And I wonder, like, how do you think about that, right? How do you think about the way in which you can try in some way to coordinate all the many actors in this space to do what we think is in its best interest, and yet allow for the fact that many of them are going to run off and just do whatever the hell they want? You're right. You know, there is no grand leader of the space Mm -hmm. or anything like that. I think it's about the stories and the narratives we tell. And you, as a storyteller, know this better than anyone. You're, you know, you're going to write your column and, and maybe this will be a message that you have in your column one day that is, you know, we all need to take a step back and we all need to look at what we're doing and not get caught up in the hype and not get caught up in the speculation. Right. Um, and it's an individual choice. Everyone has to make an individual choice. But I know a lot of people in space like you do, and I know their heads and hearts are in the right spaces and they want to create value for users. Yeah. I mean, actually, I, I wrote a column about this because I looked at you know, how much money and activity and, and energy had been gone into the token casinos, into yeah. these exchanges. And I sort of posited it as like a failure of capitalism, right? Yeah. Like, you know, that, that essentially we got the price signals wrong because, mm-hmm. you know, that's what it does. Okay, where is all the money being made? It's being made over here. Of course, I got the Twitter mob attacking me because I thought I was literally attacking capitalism and blaming capitalism uh-huh. for, what it, for what SBF had done, which was not really the point. But, <laughs> but um, you know, there is this sort of price signal challenge and how, how do we deal with that? So. I think one of the things that might be interesting is like this through this process of talking and being aware and having back to basics conversations that actually those who control the money start putting it into things that are more sort of constructive. And then that then becomes, oh, wow, the, the money's actually being made in the construction of sustainability solutions or something yeah. like that, right? And that that's where the energy goes as opposed to sort of, you know, everybody was building an exchange, you know? Yeah, everybody was building an exchange or they were building like, options trading right. or they were building, you know, they were building all the tools necessary to make, you know, speculation go round. Right. And I, I'm a technologist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a financier and I'm not a trader. And so I don't want to totally dismiss that entire area of mm. things because, you know, even at a place like MIT, if we look at the number of people who are enrolled in our classes, it's proportional to the price. The price goes yeah. up, more people yeah, enroll yeah, in the yeah. classes. The price yeah. goes down, fewer people enroll yeah, in classes. We get the same, same measure of our traffic on Coindesk. And, yeah. and so in some sense, we all live and die by how interested yeah. people are in this space and the way that they express it through finances. I mean, I, you know, I can't deny that that is a core part of what mm-hmm. we are doing and building. I just think you know, we need to be a little bit more thoughtful about it. And if we want to create 
sustainable value that's mm-hmm. going to last for years, there has to be real use cases. Right. The bottom line is like, if you're going to look at the crazy yields and returns that are going on, there has to be some justification underneath it, right? It can't yes. just be number go up. Right? Exactly. And that was, I think, the key point. It's like, okay, what is underlying this? It's yeah. another conversation that goes to that. But I will say that I think you know, Carlotta Perez, a famous economist, has this whole idea about innovation waves. And she talks about sort of an almost inherent connection between speculation and bubbles yeah. uh, and the emergence of, of new technologies. And I think, to me, it seems very pertinent to this space. It's a great way to think of the dot-com bubble, right? We had all this money flew into ultimately pointless things, the pets.coms of the world and so forth, but that lubricated everything else and it led to enormous amount of, of deployment of infrastructure and fiber optics. It led to you know, mobile computing development, it led to algorithmic search functions. All of that stuff then became Google, Facebook and everything else. I tend to think that when we look back, you know, this money has fueled a lot exactly. of, of, of innovation and yeah. building that may not be what we thought it was going to be. It's going to be the underlying piece of all this other stuff. That and that's the thing that I just have to come to terms with and understand and accept is that I'm going to see capital deployed in a tremendously inefficient number of ways. Yeah. Like there's going to be capital that is just, I'm just going to cringe <laughs> and I'm going to like be like, why, yeah, why, you know, but it's that. all part of the process <laughs> and you can't control yeah, it and you yeah. just got to let it happen. And so that's exactly yeah. right. I mean, yeah. that's the, and that is, you know, that is the, the magic, the beauty, whatever you want to say about, of capitalism. Yeah. Okay. But coming back to West, sure. I just want to do that for yeah. a second because, you know, you were saying, you know, how does it compare to before? Yeah. And it's always so weird for me to see crypto at WEF because these are like two completely different sort of paradigms, right? And in some sense, I feel weird being here, but I'm also just sort of like, well, you know, if you're going to invite, I guess I'll come and I'll I'll talk and I'll say what I think and, you know, be a part of that. But we've got like the CEOs of all the world's major banks and all the world's major financial organizations and all of these structures that quite frankly, we are trying to change, right? We are trying to create something different. And it's so weird to just see these startups in crypto in the same room as, like, quite frankly, these incumbents. Yeah. I think sometimes we forget how jarring that is. Well, the tension's yeah. an integral part of anything that's going to be a paradigm change, right? You just, you're going to have these clashes. Actually, for those who haven't been to Delphos, <laughs> I actually love the physicality of it, right? This, this notion that you've got the Congress down the hill at, at a certain part on this very long road called the promenade. And it's heavy security. You know, you've got to go through these checkpoints to go in there. And then you go down the hill as that's where the Congress area. Outside of that is this long promenade, which traditionally was occupied by all of the major, you know, Fortune 500 companies that had all these. And they're still there. There's the metas and the cities yeah. and so forth. But there's this large presence for the crypto community. Yep. Filecoin, who you know, we worked with ourselves in the sanctuary, an old church right yep. there at the beginning of the promenade. We are chatting here at the, uh, the blockchain hub, Casper Labs. Uh, there's Hedera, there is Circle, there is the GBBC down the road. And I like to think of it a little bit as the sort of barbarians who are t- trying They're to take over, the storming the gates of the Citadel, you know. Yeah. It's like as if, the, as if the promenade is like this launch pad for the attack, you know. Yeah. It's, it's quite an interesting visual, I think. That's uh, a really interesting <laughs> way of looking at it, yeah. yeah. Um, but look, so one of the topics that has... It's interesting, I think it just continues to go along because of the fact that it is one that directly involves policymakers and the financial institutions you're talking to is central bank digital currencies, mm. stable coins, the future of public money, all yeah. this sort of stuff. And look, MIT's been at the forefront of this, working with Project Hamilton. So why don't you just talk a little bit about what Project Hamilton is? Sure. And then we can segue a little bit into some of the 
conversations that you've had here? Yeah, so I think this really comes back to money and where money is going and the trends of both digitization, but also innovation that are, that are happening, not just in money, but across the board, right? And really exacerbated by the pandemic. And, you know, a fundamental question is the $100 bill, the $20 bill, the $5 bill that I have in my wallet, first of all, you might not have that in your wallet because you might not have touched cash in quite a while, right? Yeah. In a lot of countries and contexts, people aren't really using physical Never go cash. To those, you know, bureaus to just the challenge anymore when you come into Switzerland, right? You yeah. Just don't, don't, need, don't you, need to get the cash. You tap your card, you tap your phone, or you yeah. pay via an app, or you know, soon it'll be in some places you just walk through the door and it automatically charges you. But the thing to think about is sort of, well, what is the underlying structure of money in the world? Well, there's private money and there's public money, okay? And public money is provisioned by the public sector, usually the central bank. The cash in your pocket that you get, that you can do whatever you want with, nobody charges you fees on, nobody eavesdrops on what you're doing. No, you don't have to sign a terms of service or install an app to use the cash in your pocket. That's provisioned by the central bank. And as we move into the more digital world, an important question is, do we still want a public form of money, a publicly accessible form of money that's digital? Let's just work on it a little bit because I think the word public is very interesting in the blockchain space. That's right? a good point. So I've, I tend to think that, you know, is it a third definition? Because I don't think Bitcoin is private. Right? I don't think there is a company that owns Bitcoin. Ooh, that's a really interesting and, way and of looking so, at it. Yeah. So, and I do think that maybe there's a spectrum of degree to which it is public or not. Right? So yeah. the fully decentralized system, in some respects, is I love a public that. system. I love that. I'm using the traditional <clears throat> definition of public no, no, sector, no, no, it's, government, it's and private sector, Absolutely, which is yeah. anybody that's not the government. So even nonprofits or right. private sector. But your point, which I think is really interesting, is do we have a third space here? which is these decentralized systems, which are governed not by governments, right. but by processes and protocols and communities. Yeah, and and governance, right? yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really interesting way of looking at things. Let's put a pin in that. Okay. You know, it's a good point. I'm using the more traditional definition here. Sure. But sovereign money, look, there are people who say, let's get rid of central banks. Let's do it all either through communities or through the private sector. Mm -hmm. you know, And that's fine. That's a point of view. That's a certain political point of view. But if you look at the way our economy runs, and if you look at even what's happening with stablecoins, public money, sovereign money is very important. Mm -hmm. Dollars and euros and yeah. pounds and yen and renminbi, they are not going away. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. most people use that. Look, it was the reason why those casinos are there. Like it, if we didn't think that there was a dollar return to be had in whatever token you were speculating on, you wouldn't have speculated, right? Exactly. So, yeah. You know, I think what's happening in the cryptocurrency space, incredibly important. I'm still very passionate about it. We still work on it a lot. But I'm not going to abandon the public money space. This is all about, this is about upgrading money across the board. Okay. And so whether you like the term or not, and you know, terms get co-opted and get turned into things. And that's a very complicated, we could have a whole pedagogy, yeah. you know, semantics discussion. But central bank digital currency, let's use that phrase for now, is this idea of should we be digitizing cash? Should we should there be a publicly accessible form of money that is because it's provisioned by the public sector, mm -hmm. uh, can have certain values embedded in it that might not come about naturally through the private sector. So, so can we think about some, making something very accessible, very inclusive, you know, really thinking about the most financially vulnerable in our society, something that's made to work for them. Now, I think where things get very challenging is that there are so many design choices in exactly how this might work. And some of those design choices are scary. And uh, certain, you know, different jurisdictions are going to make different design choices. So if we look at what's happening in China, for example, China has been working on their own digital currency since at least 2014. You know, they are not taking privacy very seriously. The narrative is to pay lip service to it, 
But really, all the banks see user identifying information. The PBOC can connect the dots on transactions. And that's really frightening. It's not cash-like levels of privacy <clears throat> by any means, right? And so that's a value system that's being embedded in what they're building. If we were to do anything like that in the United States, which, by the way, the U.S. has not said no. they're going to do it, not mm. close to doing it, you know, still very much in just research stage. But, you know, it's very unlikely that that would be a value that we would embed in what we're doing in the United exactly. States, at least not intentionally. <laughs> yeah. But part of what I have to worry about is unintentional consequences mm -hmm. as well. So what we've been doing with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston mm -hmm. uh, called Project Hamilton is for the past two years, we've been working on research with them very closely on the technology design behind a hypothetical central bank digital currency that could operate at the scale of an economy the size of the United States. So when you think about the dollar, I mean, you were talking about not just hundreds of millions of citizens in the United States, the dollar is used internationally. And we're also not just thinking about the way it's currently used today. We were also thinking about future use cases, machine to machine payments, the internet of things, and we're, you know, micropayments. And so you really want to build a system that can scale, that has very low latency, uh, natively digital, and really takes advantage of some of the innovations that we've seen in digital currencies, yeah. you know, not least from the cryptocurrency right. world. Again, also, just to bring the other point, fuel and lubricated by the speculation, right? I mean, yeah. if it weren't for that, you would, the amazing progress that's been had in zero-knowledge proofs, fair right, point. is in fact, in some respects, funded by this whole it's speculation. It's a very fair point. That is a very fair yeah. point. And so thinking about things like programmability, verifiability, uh, privacy, you know, what can we learn from that world and bring over here? Yeah. And so that was what we were working on. And uh, I'm actually incredibly proud of what we've built. I think that there are a few things to note about it that are important. Number one, we released open source software with the Federal Reserve System. I don't know if they've done that no, before. Yeah. <laughs> I am so proud of that, that we got all of this released as open source software because this is money and you got to be able to look at it and see what the code is doing. So anybody can go look at it. And what they're going to find is that we took privacy very seriously. We built a system that does not store data. And if you don't store data, then you can't use the data, right? The best way to protect people's privacy is just don't collect don't the data. Don't, don't collect yeah. the data. And we were only working on a small piece of the puzzle. Like, I want to make that clear. Anything at this scale would require so much mm -hmm. more work. But we did take privacy very, very seriously. We weren't storing a lot of data. And we were thinking about designing a system where the central bank, at least, does not have to see user identifying information mm -hmm. and does not have to be, you know, right there in the middle of payments, except for settling and, you know, settling in central bank money, which is what they do. So I think what we really showed is that there's a way to design this. If policymakers are interested, there's a way to build this mm -hmm. that looks a lot more like digital cash, which is privacy preserving, which is accessible and inclusive, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, some of the things that people are more worried about mm -hmm. when it comes to this area, because there's a dystopian view of yeah, this of technology as well. well. Well, I think you started off by saying something that was very interesting when you were having this discussion about what is public money, what is private money. Yeah. You talk about, and the third form that you right, brought the third up. Form yeah, is, yeah. But you talked about the, the very idea that privacy is almost, by definition, this feature of that public money, right? Because it is... Yeah, and it's it, a little confusing because we're using private money, you know, privacy. Right, oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those words confidential well, right? or, you right. know, you're like... Right, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think this very idea that it's like a public good, right? Yes. And, and it cannot be a public good if that privacy component is, is there. I, I would argue, right? Isn't there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. If it's not there, then it, it is a tool of some institution, be that a, you know, essentially yeah. single-party state like China's or a company that's running that, right? And so just even being able to think about the concept of public money through, through the privacy, not private, but privacy lens, lens yeah. I think is really important. 
Now, as you said, you're just doing one small piece of the, the puzzle here. And there is, of course, an enormously uh, vibrant debate uh, as to whether or not the central bank should be issuing and yep. running its own ledger yep. or are stable coins the solution yes. which run on the top of, yep. of, of open public blockchain. Can I tell you yeah. what I think? It's yeah. not either or. Okay. It is absolutely not either or. We need diversity. I think we need to understand and experiment with both. You start with what are the problems that we're trying to solve? What, you know, money needs to move faster and more safer and more securely. We need faster settlement, especially across currencies and across borders. That is a, is a big challenge. We need more innovation in our global monetary settlement systems. You start with the problems and then you realize there's a lot of potential solutions out there. You know, there's mobile money, there's stable coins, there's central bank digital currency, there's cryptocurrency, there's uh, payment platforms. Mm -hmm. And all of these are going to be pieces of the puzzle. It's not like one's going to win. We actually want diversity in payments. Mm. And so to me, it's not, oh, it's CBDCs or crypto or stable coins. Let a thousand flowers bloom. Mm -hmm. and, and something that I actually think about, which I don't hear talked about very much at all, is how can central banks better support a safe, secure, regulated, thriving stablecoin ecosystem mm -hmm. is another question, mm -hmm. right? Like what we've seen in the cryptocurrency space is there's a huge demand for sovereign currencies, especially the dollar. There's mm -hmm. a massive demand for the dollar. How can we provide that safely and securely? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, so to, to be clear though, you know, Project Hamilton, this, this design parameters that you've got, you know, bringing on board these privacy components and everything else, is that applicable outside of a central bank model, it's the same primitive that could be used for stable coins or do you enter into a different realm once there's these That's other issues? That's a great question, Michael. So I think that there are some things that could be learned and useful and applied and some things that are pretty specific. So one thing that's really important to note is our design is built for a centralized context. Mm -hmm. The phrase central bank digital currency has central right there yeah, in the name. Yeah. And uh, you know, public money, this type of money, sovereign money, is governed by democratic processes and Congresses and parliaments and central banks and you know they're not it's not governed by a set of 21 validators where a supermajority can change the way the system works. That's not the way sovereign money works. That's the way cryptocurrencies work. That's great. That's cool. Let's keep that going. But not the way that sovereign money works. So, you know, we started with that premise for the design. That's the trust sort of governance ecosystem that we're operating inside of. So that was there. You know, stable coins, a lot of them are pretty centralized. I'm not gonna lie, right? And a big part of what's been happening so far is building stable coins to operate on top of public blockchain right. networks, to be a tool used in public blockchain networks. And I think that's great. Another question is, well, what about are stable coins going to escape public blockchain networks? You know, I mean, like JP Morgan coin does not operate mm -hmm. on a public blockchain network. That's not what it was designed to do. It's a very different context. Are we going to see, you know, more, even more privatized versions of stable coins? People talk about tokenized bank accounts a lot, right? Are they going to operate on public blockchain networks? Or are they going to operate on something else? I honestly don't know the answer mm. to this question. But I think, you know, the work that we've done could be interesting in a lot of these different contexts. And how do you feel about interoperability? Because obviously, the, oh, that's like it's got to be, right? Yeah. And it's not, and it lies in two realms. One is this proliferation of different types of digital currency, whether private, public, you know, JP Morgan coin, whatever. The interoperability of that with the, with the broad system. But then, of course, there's the international component of this because we know so many countries are exploring this. And there's this fluidity that is potentially incredibly powerful when it comes to you know, digital dollars being able to move around the world. But there's also like a sovereign threat there, I would argue. The, f the, f the ease with which a, 
anybody in the world could now obtain dollars. It really does pose a challenge. And, you know, it, it's interesting because we talk about dollarization as having often been a force. Uh, we know that, you know, Ecuador dollarized. We know that, you know, briefly Argentina effectively did. Um, you know, Zimbabwe did, et cetera. So and these are in moments of crisis and stress yeah. when they have no option because their money. This is potentially happening in a much more benign environment where government is doing all that it can. It's actually managing its monetary world, but it's now being threatened instead with this incoming one. So I think a lot about that because I try to wonder, like, is there and should there be an international conversation around this and how to, A, make them interoperable, but also ensure that there is some, that the sovereignty, which is such an important part of, we use the term sovereign money, uh, is actually something that is retained by these, these countries. Oh, it's so challenging, Michael. <clears throat> and it's almost like outside the crypto conversation, yeah. like the globalization that's happening broadly, the geopolitical intricacies of what's happening, the way that global settlement systems are being weaponized, quite frankly. I mean, it's, it's above the pay grades <laughs> in some sense. Actually. Yeah, it's, but it's all tied together with the mm-hmm. crypto conversation, the digital currency conversation, which is what makes it so fascinating to me. And why I think I keep coming to events like this, where you have central bank governors, where you have the CEO of SWIFT, where you have the world's best economists trying to tackle some of these questions and trying to, trying to come out of it. And I mean, the theme that's been repeated here over and over and over again is, are we moving towards a world of more fragmentation, both geopolitically, but also in our payment systems to kind of bring it back to what we work on? And uh, what are the downsides of that? What, what are going to be the effects of that? And how do we think about shared international cooperation and standards? Yeah. You know, how, what do we put in place? Who are the bodies that are going to help facilitate that? You know, traditionally, it's been the IMF, the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements. But do we need new bodies? Do we need more modern bodies? Mm. I mean, not, not to replace them, but to augment them to provide some of that technology expertise, and especially. Here at, here at Davos, you've been involved in conversations around some of this, right? I mean, do you feel as if there's a growing awareness of the need for this higher level of coordination? And, I think uh, there's definitely awareness of the need for it, but it's, you know, it's a question of, you know, who's going to do it? How do we prioritize it? And everybody leaves, you know, when everyone's here and they're in the same room, they're like, yes, we got to work on yeah. this. And then everybody goes back to their normal lives. And yeah. it's like, there's a million fires that need to be put out. And so it's really yeah. challenging. And you don't want this to be done in a crisis environment. You want to do, like, that's, the pro- that's when people you know, have the time have is when, it, yeah. when everything's on. It's when the Bretton Woods yeah. uh, system was created, rather right? than the wake of the Second World War. Okay, let's leave it at that. That was tremendous. <laughs> really love that conversation. That Thank went you so everywhere. Much. It went everywhere. It always does. This is the nature yeah. of uh, the Money Reimagined podcast. Uh, but quickly, why don't people, where can they go to look up and learn about Project Hamilton, DCI, and, and yeah. maybe have a chance to look at that code and, and kick, kick the tires on it? Absolutely. So we got a website. It's dci.mit.edu. We're on Twitter at MITDCI. Uh, we, we have a GitHub as well, all linked to from all of those different places. And yes, it's open for contributions and we want people to be involved. Very open source. Excellent. Neha, thank you so much. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Okay, that was Neha Narula, the director of MIT's Digital Currency Initiative. That's all we have time for for now. I'm Michael Casey. Come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Adabi Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, money reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.